Father in heaven, we give you thanks that we again get another opportunity to study your word together. Father, we thank you that you have spoken in it. And again, as we've praised you every time that we've read these chapters on the building of the temple, that you are concerned about details, about gold and bronze and about basins and about big, huge bowls and what these things mean for us. And so we pray, Father, uh, that you would do just that, that you would tell us what these things mean for us, uh, that you would prick our hearts, but even more so, that you would point us to Christ in all his beauty and magnificence. Pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. As all of you know, uh, yesterday we came back from a week-long vacation uh, at the beach. And, and one of the things that I love about the beach is there's just a lot of time early in the morning throughout the day is you just sit there in a chair, which is what vacation is supposed to be. But at the beach you get to sit there in a chair and just look at just how big the ocean is. And even j- just the portion of the ocean that you can see is bigger than anything else that you can see. And the further you go out into the ocean, if you're brave enough to go hip deep, or if you're brave enough to go where you can't touch anymore, uh, you realize, uh, the further you get away from the shore particularly, just how big the ocean is. Uh, and one of the results of it being so big is that it always wins. Uh, the, the first day that we went out on the beach, I thought that I would uh, be quite... Um, uh, I don't know, I ignored my, uh, the advice of my conscience and of my mind, and I, I thought to myself when I went out on that first day, and I was like, ah, there's no need to take my sunglasses off, right? It's not going to be that rough when I get out there. And so I got out there on my board, and sure enough, it was rough, and so I started to head in, and I got 25 yards in, and a wave comes from behind and knocks my sunglasses off, and they float to the bottom of the sea, and I'm just trying to survive, so I continue swimming and leave the sunglasses for the But it always wins, Right? The ocean always wins. It wins against unsinkable boats. It wins against sunglasses. It wins against any boat, really, with enough time. It wins against pretty much any man-made structure that's put within its vicinity. It always wins. And in that respect, it's a lot like God. Right? God always wins. God always wins. Even when it comes to sin, God always wins. He either redeems and calls the sinner to himself, or he punishes that sin in eternity. But God always wins, no matter what. God has written the plan for all of eternity, and at the end, God wins, and God's winning even now. God's big, just like the ocean, and God wins always like the ocean. And the particular way that we see God winning here, I think, in verse or in chapter 7, uh, is that God shows himself uh, to be all-glorious, even in spite of efforts of some contrary to that. Uh, what I mean is that, that, that no matter what, what goes on in this world, uh, really no matter what God's people do, uh, God orchestrates the plan, and he's sovereign such to the fact that he always glorifies himself. And we see that with Solomon. Uh, the author of, of Kings is, is proving this point particularly when, uh, 
with the way that this entire section of the book of Kings is set up. In chapter 5, we have Solomon gathering all the materials for the temple. In chapter 6, we have Solomon actually starting construction on the temple where he constructs a beautiful building and overlays it with gold and it's magnificent and it's wonderful and it points, again, to the magnificence and, and wonderfulness of the Lord God Almighty. And then we come to chapter 7, which is 51 verses long. And still in chapter 7, the overwhelming majority of the real estate is devoted to the construction of the temple, the details in which the furnishings of the temple were constructed. But right in in the middle of this three-chapter section are 12 verses describing Solomon really doing his own thing. Really, these, these verses, if you were to read chapters 5, 6, and 7 in one continuous sitting, you would realize that hey, these verses, they're not like the others, right? They're, it seems like a digression. They're, they're about Solomon, really not necessarily focused anymore on the Lord's glory, but on his own glory. It's obvious that, starting to be obvious here in chapter 7, but obvious as the chapters roll on and the pages turn, the book of Kings, that Solomon's priorities have shifted. Whereas in the beginning he started off well. He was owning the promises of God for himself. He began construction on the temple. Now it seems as if Solomon's begun to slip. It seems as if in verses 1 through 12 the author is showing us that Solomon now wants to make a name for himself. And so what does he do? He builds for himself a compound. If you take really either of the five different structures that are described in verses 1 through 12, if you take them separate or together, and the square footage that it talks about as being one big building or five different buildings, either way, they they dwarf the temple in size. If we look at the measurements of the house, uh, of just one of the houses, uh, we see that it's roughly, uh, the temple is roughly 25% of that particular house, the house of Lebanon. And so if you were an Israelite and you were walking through Jerusalem during this time, you would have realized, wow, Solomon's really building for himself a lot of buildings, a lot of stuff, and it it dwarfs the temple in size. It would have been obvious where Solomon's priorities were shifting. And not only did Solomon build for himself a bigger house, but he also took double the time to build it as the house of the Lord. Our chapter divisions between chapters 6 and 7 kind of may distract us from realizing this, but, but the author is, is clear. He, he puts these two things right beside each other. In chapter 6, verse 38, the author says, And in the eleventh year, in the month of Bull, which is the eighth month, the house was finished, the house of the Lord, finished in all its parts according to all its specifications. He was seven years in building it. And then the very next clause, Solomon was building his own house 13 years. And he finished his entire house. Now this, this, this comparison of how many years that uh, took to build the temple versus how many years Solomon took to build his own house uh, leads a substantial amount of commentators to conclude that, well, maybe Solomon paused building the temple to build his own house, which is the way that it's actually laid out in the book of Kings. 
and therefore uh, built his, his priorities, shifted to his own house before he actually finished building the house of the Lord. But nevertheless, the total time that it took to build these two structures, the house of the Lord compared to the house of Solomon, Solomon's is almost double. Now, whether it's the case that Solomon paused and then restarted construction on the temple, I can't be certain, but, but the sheer quantity of time in comparison is alarming. Solomon's building for himself again a compound, and by doing so, he's making an attempt, I think, at his own glory. Whereas he started building a house for the Lord that, was, that would glorify the Lord and point to all of his magnificence, now he shifted to building for himself a house that would glorify him and show just how magnificent King Solomon was. Verses 9 to 12 kind of lead us to believe the same thing. Uh, the author here uses the word costly three times. And then it climaxes in verse 12 with a direct comparison between the house of the Lord and the house of Solomon. He's alluding to the fact that, that both houses were built with the same material. And when we think of the king of Israel, right, we wouldn't expect, we, you know, this would not be a surprise if we were talking about the king of Egypt or some other king of, of some other rogue nation, but we're talking about the king of Israel, a king who's familiar with God himself and how God himself has dwelt with his people thus far, right? While his people dwelt in tents, God dwelt in a tent beside them. And even as we compare King Solomon with Christ Jesus, right? Jesus came and dwelt in in flesh, in humility, while Solomon seems to be dwelling in glory. But besides that, Putting all that aside, God is still using Solomon for his own glory. No matter how hard Solomon tries to work at glorifying himself, the way that it's recorded in the scriptures, the way that the Holy Spirit inspired the author of Kings to write it down, God gets the glory. The temple is still built and finished, and the temple gets the overwhelming majority of the words of the real estate in chapters 5 through 7. 77 out of 89 verses concern themselves with the building and construction of the temple, while only 12 concern themselves with Solomon. And it's obvious the, the point that he's trying to make. Solomon, no matter how hard he tries, cannot usurp God's glory. He can't outdo God in glorifying himself. Solomon's glory is but a speck of dust in comparison comparison to God's glory, despite the the fact that his compound is, is, is quite a bit bigger. Despite Solomon's misplaced priorities and attempts at his own glory, God still eclipses Solomon with glorifying himself. It's almost like no matter what happens, God still glorifies himself. No matter how hard Solomon may try to glorify himself, God still wins. No matter how big Solomon makes himself, God is yet still bigger. And the same thing's true today. No matter how 
dumb we can be at some points in time in our lives, God still glorifies himself. All things work together for our good, but ultimately all things work together for God's glory. As I said before, even with sin, God still gets his glory. Either he redeems the sinner or he is praised for his perfect justice and judgment in the last day. God is bigger than we are. God always wins. God always glorifies himself. And to say it even more clearly, there's really nothing that we can do that in the end won't bring God glory. Now that's not a license to go and do whatever we want to and to go and sin against God. But, but either way, God always glorifies himself at the end of the day. He's sovereign. He's the one who's writing the story and he always gets what he wants. And when we realize that, that God is actually bigger than we are, right, that he's sovereign over all things and we let that truth kind of seep into our hearts, it gives us freedom in two perspectives. It gives us freedom in regards to the past and it gives us freedom in regards to the present and future. The fact that, that, that God's glory is bigger than we are is a comfort to some of us who have really sinned in some spectacular ways before in our lives. Those of us who, who've really done a, a really good job at doing a bad thing. Those of us who perhaps lay in bed at night and, and recount everything that's, you know, we're falling off or trying to drift off to sleep, everything that's happened under the sun since we've been here and all the things that we've done and can't seem to shake that one thing that we did a couple weeks, a year, ten years ago. Maybe it's sins that we've actively committed or maybe it's things that we've been passively involved in. We didn't speak up when we should have. We didn't say anything when we should have. We didn't... We were passive. Whatever the case, many of us have regrets about the past. But when we realize that, that God is sovereign over all things and we were we realize the fact that God glorifies himself in the end no matter what. That even in his eternal wisdom and his infinite wisdom, somehow or another, he works all things for his own glory. God's glory eclipsing Solomon's attempt at glory I think actually eases a lot of our burdens. It helps us to realize the fact that, that God is, is bigger than whatever mistakes that we've made in the past. It can be hard to, to, to move on from mistakes in the past when our mistakes you know, still have fallout, but we should know that, that God is actually bigger than those. In His eternal plan and in His wisdom and His providence, He can still glorify Himself and He still will glorify Himself one way or the other. So it gives us freedom with regards to the things that we've done in the past, but it also gives us freedom with regards to the things that we are doing or that we might do in the future. To know that, that God is bigger than we are and that He glorifies Himself even through whatever mess that we have in our life give, gives us tremendous amount of freedom to just be faithful, to be faithful people 
to realize the fact that, yes, we probably are going to mess up. We are going to sin. We, all, we are going to fall short. We are going to blow it in some way or another. But yet, God, God can make it right. right? We, can, we can confess our sin. We can repent. We can ask for forgiveness. And God will be glorified. It gives us the freedom to not obsess over every single thing that we do. But again, gives us the freedom to trust in the Lord and do good. To dwell in the land and befriend righteousness. Psalm 37.3 Because God is King of kings and Lord of lords and sovereign over all things and full of glory and always working, him, always working all things to His own glory, we are free to entrust our futures and, and our pasts to His grace and mercy. One of the things that we notice from 1 Kings chapter 7 is that God will always be glorified. He will glorify Himself no matter what. But with His glory also comes His holiness. The two always go together. God's glory is never divorced from His holiness. His glory and holiness are like peanut butter and jelly or salt and pepper. They're inseparable. You can't have one without the other. God's magnificence, His wonder, His awe is is exemplified by the construction of the temple and the number of words that that takes up in those three chapters. The pillars that we read about demonstrate His strength and His faithfulness to His people. The detailed artwork and the, the precious metals demonstrate His beaming glory and magnificence and beauty. The temple itself is a reminder that God wants to be with His people. Right, that's the whole point of the temple, so that, that God can be with His people. He will dwell in the midst of the people. He will put His name on this building and it will remain there forever as long as the people are faithful. He wants to be in their midst. It's been that way from the beginning in the garden when God walked with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. It looks like that at the end of the Bible in Revelation chapter 22 when God is actually physically with His people. God wants to be with His people. The incarnation proves the same thing. God has always wanted to be with His people. But when God comes to dwell with His people, His holiness comes with Him. And this is drawn out of the text by the fact of the sheer volume of water that is located at the temple at all times. It's hard to maybe see this from the text, just a a quick reading of it, but the sea that's talked about in verses 23 through 26 is this huge bowl-shaped vessel that's said to be made of cast metal and it would hold 2,000 baths, which translates to about 12,000 gallons of water. And then right after that we have the construction of ten stands, and then on top of those ten stands are the other part that we read about, the the ten basins, each of which hold about 240 gallons of water. So we have one 12,000-gallon bowl of water at the temple, and we have these ten 240-gallon bowls at the temple, which makes almost, right there there at 15,000 gallons of water that that would have been located at the temple complex. 15,000 gallons of water is a lot of water. Don't believe me? Just pay the water bill on that kind of water. You realize that it was a lot of water really quickly. But why so much water? Why do we need so much water at the temple? 
Now, we're not told explicitly here, but 2 Chronicles, which parallels a lot of this narrative, says that explicitly the basins, the 240-gallon basins, those 10 basins were for the priests to cleanse, to wash off the burnt offerings in, 2 Chronicles 4, 6. So the 10 basins were for to, to wash the burnt offerings in the sea, the big 12,000-gallon bowl, were for the priests to wash themselves in. So in other words, the, the water at the temple served the purpose of cleansing both the burnt offerings and the priests themselves. Why do they need to be cleansed? Because they're unclean. Because they were saturated with sin. And God's presence is actually saturated with holiness. Why was there so much water at the temple? Well, there's so much water at the temple because there was so much sin and there was so much holiness, and so there needed to be so much cleansing. With God's glory comes His holiness, and with God's holiness dwelling in the midst of His people comes the requirement for them to be made holy too. And the water, again, served this purpose, the purpose of, of illustrating or pointing to the fact that it would wash away sin in order that people might draw near to the Lord. But again, the, the water itself didn't wash away the sin. Right? It was a sign that pointed to a, a spiritual reality, the same way that our baptism works. Our, our baptism doesn't actually wash away our sin. It's a sign, it's something visible that we can see and that we can feel that points to a spiritual reality, the fact that our sins are washed away by the blood of Christ. Cleansing from sin is not something that water can do. It's something that the blood of Christ does. Only the blood of Christ can cleanse us from our sin that we might be brought near to God. And it does just that, right? Christ Blood washes away our sin fully and finally. Every single sin, even the ones that we still regret, like we were talking about a moment ago, even the ones that we still mourn about, even the ones that we haven't even committed yet, God's or Christ's blood washes away those sins. So why the washing? Well, it was, it was, it was a ceremonial thing so that the people of God could draw near to God. Why do we need Christ's blood? So that we can draw near to God himself. In Christ, our sin has been washed away. It doesn't exist anymore. It, it, it is no more. And to be honest, some of us, at different points in our lives at least, have a hard time appreciating that fact that, that the blood of Christ washes away my sin. We have a hard time uh, wrestling with that and actually that, that meaning anything down deep in our hearts. And I think that's because we oftentimes don't understand the magnitude of our sin itself. We don't understand the true weight of our sin. Perhaps part of the reason that, that Jesus really doesn't mean all that much to us is, is because I really don't think I'm that sinful. This is a problem that 
affects a lot of us. We, we, we treat our sin like a pair of sunglasses that we lost, right? We lose them. Oh, it just only cost 20, 30 bucks. I'll order me another pair. It'll be fine. Right? My sin, I, I sin. I, I commit a sin against the Lord. I commit a sin against some other person. Oh, it's not that big of a deal. It'll be fine. Right? It doesn't really bring any pause to my heart. It doesn't really affect me in any way. But having so much water at the temple forces us to rethink that. Right? The, the priests themselves had to pause, had to stop before they could offer the offerings and go wash them off. Before they went into the temple, they had to go wash themselves off. They had to be cleansed. Because God is, God is holy, sin demands pause. It demanded the priests to stop. It, it demands for us to stop. Sinning against the Lord demands, it, it demands that we can consider what we've done. It demands that we consider what we've done so that godly sorrow can bring about repentance and so that we can confess it and so that we can be forgiven. Sin is not inconsequential. The, the culture wants us to believe that you do whatever you want to do and it's not that big of a deal as long as you're not hurting anyone else, but the Bible doesn't teach the same thing. It teaches that we, when we do sin against God, it is a big deal. Right? Sin does matter. And because it does matter, I do need Christ. That's how Christ becomes beautiful, as we get a really good understanding of our sins so that we can see how beautiful and magnificent and how much I really do need His blood to atone for my sin. So on the one hand, a lot of us really struggle with, with thinking about our sin enough, and some of us, again, struggle with thinking about it too much. Some of us really feel and contemplate our sin a lot. We feel the burden of shame and we feel it constantly. There's really never a day, there's never an hour, there's never a free moment of thinking where I don't feel the things that I've done and I don't feel my shame that I've been yoked to for so long. And so everything in our lives, how we view ourselves, how we view what we can and how we can't do and who we are, the person that we see in the mirror is framed out in the negative through the lens of this sin, of the shame that we are dragging along behind us. The water and the blood also speak to, to that problem as well. We need to know that, that our identity is not defined by the things that we have done in the past. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9-11 through 11 tell us this. Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor the idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, nor or will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. And you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Right? We don't need to let our past, our shame, define who we are and so lead us into a lifelong, crippling self-loathing. But we look to Christ and all that we are given in Him, the new, walking in the newness of life, the power of the Holy Spirit to repent and believe the gospel. 
We stake our, our, our faith, our life on Him. And we, we rejoice in our new identities as, as adopted and holy sons and daughters of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so my encouragement as we close in 1 Kings 7 is, is to stop running away from Christ, to stop running away from God. God wants to be with His people. The temple, again, is proof of that fact. And He's made amends. He's made a way for us to draw near to Him through the blood of Christ. So don't run from Him, but run to Him. Ask Him. Ask the Spirit to help you, to help you redefine who you are according to God's Word. Let's pray. Father in Heaven, thank You for Your kindness. And we thank You, Lord, that You are sovereign over every single thing that happens in this universe. That You always glorify Yourself no matter what. And we thank You, Father, that You've made a way for us to have access to You through the blood of Christ. We thank You that we don't have to be washed in a big bowl of water or we don't have to wash our offerings anymore, but Christ is enough. That Christ is enough. We thank You for Him and His name. Amen.